Welcome to Caring on the Go, your exclusive access to the latest news and commentary from the current issue of Caring for the Ages, the official newspaper of AMDA, the Society for Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine. Statements made by guests on this podcast are their own opinions and are not necessarily the positions of the society. A speaker's appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them, their views, or any entity they represent. This podcast is eligible for ABPLM pre-approved certified medical director credits. Details will be provided at the end of this podcast. And now here's our host of Caring on the Go, Dr. Carl Steinberg. Welcome to Caring on the Go for the April 2023 issue. I'm your host, Dr. Carl Steinberg. Caring on the Go, a member of the AMDA on the Go podcast series, spotlights articles and stories from Caring for the Ages, the news magazine from AMDA, the Society for Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine. And I'm still kind of basking in the afterglow of our annual AMDA meeting in Tampa in March and seeing so many of my dear friends and colleagues. And I also really enjoyed our live recording of Caring on the Go in the Tampa Convention Center with our managing editor, Tess Bird, as a special guest. Uh, so that was uh, that was fun. If you haven't had a chance to listen to it, please do. So with every new issue of Caring, we welcome Caring for the Ages Editor-in-Chief, Dr. Elizabeth Gallick, to discuss some of the key articles in the issue. And this episode will be highlighting the April 2023 issue of Caring. Dr. Gallick, as you know, is a nurse practitioner in long-term care and community-based settings through a clinical practice within the Shepherd Pratt Health System. She's a professor at the University of Maryland School of Nursing, where she teaches in the Adult Gerontology Primary Care Nurse Practitioner Program and conducts research to improve care practices for older adults with dementia and their caregivers in long-term care. And today, we're also especially pleased to welcome our special guest, Alexandria Hill. Alex is the Director of Quality Improvement at Westminster Canterbury on Chesapeake Bay, an innovative life plan community in Virginia Beach, Virginia. So Alexandria is from Virginia. I just just put that together. She's also a healthcare quality consultant who provides survey readiness, regulatory compliance, and process improvement support to post-acute and long-term care organizations. With over a decade of experience in PALTC, Alex has transitioned from the bedside to corporate leadership roles in operations, staff development, informatics, quality improvement, risk management, and regulatory compliance and cannabis, which we'll be talking about. Uh, Alex is board certified in gerontology and nursing professional development, also holding certifications in dementia, quality assurance, and resident assessment coordination. She's also an item writer for the American Nurses Association and serves on the American Cannabis Nurses Association's credentialing and research and education committees. Wow, the American Cannabis Nurses Association. Hmm. So uh, finally, next month, Alex will be graduating from Virginia Commonwealth University as a doctor of nursing practice. Congratulations, Alex. Thank you so much. And thank you for having me here today. Yeah. And, and Alex's DNP project is called Fostering Safe Cannabis Access and Literacy for Older Adults and Healthcare Providers. And this was really the launching point for your kind of cannabis advocacy journey. So we'll we'll talk about that. So uh, welcome to both of you. Thanks, Carl. And Alex, thank you so much for being here um, because you're really the expert in, in um, cannabis. So um, I didn't want to have to explain your article. So thrilled that 
that you're with us today. Yeah. And, you know, we don't often have guests on this podcast. I think we only had one all year last year, Alex. So I hope you're feeling mighty special and we're very happy to have you. I feel more than mighty special. It's a true honor. Uh, AMDA has been a really invaluable partner in this journey, and so much growth has occurred since I initially was welcomed to present at the annual meeting last year or in 2022. Um, sad that I missed this year's meeting, but hope to see all the listeners again next year. All right. Yeah, we'll hope to have you there in San Antonio next March. So we're going to kick off today's session talking about your article on cannabis from page one of the April issue of Caring. And thank you for writing it. Also, thanks for your very helpful article from last year uh, in Caring for the Ages that was also on the same topic. Uh, cannabis, it's a topic that I think I'm safe saying that most of our listeners lack both knowledge and experience with. So I guess to start off with, let me ask you, and not to get too personal, but what motivated you to become an authority on this topic and how did you set about doing that? Sure. So I know several people who experience significant therapeutic benefit from cannabis and have done so long before medical use was somewhat formalized to where it is today. Um, and while I may not have understood it fully at the time, in many ways, cannabis truly is their medicine. And now I know that to be true. Mm -hmm. um, as I came to understand this and as I was growing as a regulatory compliance consultant, I retrospectively asked myself, what would happen to these folks if they ever needed inpatient care in a hospital? How would they get their medicine if they someday needed to reside in a post-acute care center. Mm. Um, it remained a burning question in my mind, but then became a full-blown forest fire um, as medical <laughs> and adult use programs rapidly developed. And I learned that older adults are more likely than any other age group to initiate, resume, or continue to use cannabis. So from there, I really immersed myself in the literature and health policy surrounding it. And then fate came into play when I began my doctoral program and was uh, trying to decide on my topic. My amazing vice president challenged me to not only pursue something innovative and unique, but something that I felt passionate about. And when I brought up cannabis, I didn't quite know what to expect, but she was extremely supportive. Um, knowing that we needed to walk before we started to run, I had initially intended to focus on attitudes and perceptions, but it quickly became clear that they're generally positive in theory. But as you mentioned, um, the biggest barrier to support really is that knowledge. Um, and then outside of the obvious of you know health policy, specifically the disconnect between federal and state law and opportunities for research. Yeah, yeah. Well, that that's a lot, but thank you for that that background. And I'm I'm really glad that there are people, uh, you know, doing that kind of work because, uh, as you said, it can be a, a a real life changer. And I, you know, it can obviously have uh, very positive and potentially negative, um, uh, you know, effects on people. So, to me, the fact that cannabis is still considered a Schedule One controlled substance is just one of, of multiple factors that make its use problematic and at least in a nursing home setting. And so I live in California. This is a state where both medical marijuana and, and recreational uh, cannabis are legal. And a lot of nursing home residents want to have access to it, right? We baby boomers, you know, we still like our, like our weed and, and some still do, but it's difficult even here. So in fact, just, I think it was just last year, we passed a law called Ryan's law that now requires nursing homes to allow terminal patients, only terminal patients, meaning a year or less of life expectancy to use cannabis in the facility, as long as the staff don't have to participate in any way, uh, like they can't store it, they can't procure it, they can't in any way be part of it. 
Um, which means, of course, if, if the person doesn't have a family member or someone, they're just going to be out of luck. And I, I think being terminally ill, that's a pretty high bar for a person to be sort of guaranteed the possibility of, of access to cannabis in a sniff. Uh, I know other states have different rules, and certainly many facilities may just turn a blind eye to residents' cannabis use in various formulations, but it's clear that there can be potential adverse effects from cannabis use too. So what cautionary perspectives can you share with our listeners and also maybe what uh, success stories or strategies to, to help patients who are appropriate for it to be able to get it? Sure. So um, I really urge the importance of understanding the regulatory guidance in your state of practice. As you mentioned, every state handles cannabis differently, and that's putting it lightly. Um, an advocacy organization called the Americans for Safe Access, they release an annual report each year that helps readers understand the state of their state. Um, I think it's also important to note that just because a program is in place does not necessarily mean that it's functional. Um, some states are more comprehensive than others. And you had mentioned Ryan's Law and um, things like that. But like you said, the bar can still be set pretty high, especially in a, a sniff. And there's a lot of barriers to work through, especially if they don't have those, those caregivers. And of course, just because there's cannabis laws doesn't mean that it's, um, you know, all cannabis, there could be uh, low THC or CBD only programs, um, which speaking of CBD, I'd be remiss if I didn't emphasize um, that cannabis doesn't only constitute the Delta 9 THC that we think of as marijuana. Um, in fact, the complete opposite is true. Uh, more than 80 cannabinoids exist and whether they are sourced from either hemp or marijuana or what either includes or excludes them from the Controlled Substances Act. So THC is derived, it's THC that is derived from hemp that contains less than 0.3% by dry weight is not federally prohibited. So I really challenge the audience to not automatically default to the reefer madness or the, the marijuana that we often think of when we encounter cannabis, either in practice or we hear about it in the media um, or when reading it in the literature. Right. So you're basically saying like, so CBD, there should be no problem. I mean, it's not a schedule one controlled substance. Uh, right. That type of uh, cannabinoid is not uh, not considered habituating or, or uh, abusable or anything like that. Right. Correct. And there there could be products that are hemp derived that do contain THC, um, but are not you know, in direct conflict with that Controlled Substances Act. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. Well, I smoked a lot of marijuana in high school and college. I mean, that was a long time ago. I'm sure it was very bad for my uh, academic performance and my general motivation towards school, but I haven't had any in 40-ish years. Uh, but I, I know from my reading that the THC content these days is probably at least an order of magnitude higher than it was back then. And, and so I think for our frail older patients, especially those that are already on polypharmacy or on uh, psychotropic prescribed meds, I would think the risks of delirium or frank psychosis with at least high THC products could be significant. And your article points out some of these concerns. And I love the classic sort of, you know, geriatrician advice you share about, you know, start low, go slow if you're contemplating using this. But of the other issues, we don't know exactly what or how much is in most of these formulations, uh, right? I mean, if, whether it be a gummy or, a, you know, other edibles or, or vape or whatever, I, I mean, I'm not sure how low do you start, right? And, and what other admonitions do you want to share with our listeners if they're, if they're contemplating uh, helping their residents uh, 
you know, uh, take cannabis. Right. This is a big one. So to start, the experience that you shared um, is exactly what I hope to reframe the narrative on. Um, not only is there more to cannabis than the public perception of marijuana, but recreational use and medical cannabis use are distinctly different, um, but are often generalized to be the same. Um, right. the, can the cannabis that you consumed 40 years ago and the ways that you likely consumed it um, are vastly different than what's available for a therapeutic benefit now. Um, we could have an entire on-the-go episode Episode just about the research that's been conducted related to the cognitive effects of cannabis. Um, the, this is your brain on drugs adage is not as accurate as we once believed. <laughs> <laughs> and unlike adult use, um, studies on cannabis um, as a therapeutic modality have demonstrated improvements in depression and anxiety. And there's even evidence to support um, for its ability to support even neurocognition and neuroprotection. Mm. Um, Alzheimer's disease is a qualification for medical cannabis in close to 20 states. And so I know earlier you had asked about some success stories. Um, we have seen um, in our community um, benefit with some um, high um, CBD, low legal limit THC um, on some of our residents who are having those behavioral um, symptoms of dementia that have not been manageable in other ways or as like in a juvient um, and as a um, you proactive and it, it there's also literature out there that um, supports reduction in medication burden as well. Yeah, um, so tell me a little bit more about that. So what what kind of a formulation was that? Was it uh, something edible or, or uh, how did they ingest it? So edible tinctures, um, of course, we don't recommend smoking or vaping as a, a first line of defense by any means. Um, but the is this the start low, go slow adage that you had, had mentioned and um, really making sure that we know what's in a product. So um, unlike previously, we now can isolate cannabinoids to meet targeted medical conditions. Um, so it's now possible to know exactly what's in the formulation by interpreting that third-party lab test that I mentioned in the article um, that analyzes potency, um, the composition of the product, and then the absence or presence of contaminants. So anything that is implemented into practice certainly needs to have that product transparency. Um, and that's something that I stress to both patients and um, healthcare providers. That's a that's a great point. And by the way, I, I really we are just kind of scratching the surface here. So I uh, encourage uh, all of our listeners to read the article in its in its entirety. Beth, you have any uh, any input here? Sorry about that. Um, actually, Alex, I, I'm going to ask you a little bit about Marinol. Um, I, I know that in the past, um, some of my colleagues in behavioral health used um, Marinol with some um, individuals with Alzheimer's disease with pretty severe behavioral symptoms. One of the challenges that I saw kind of later if I picked up those patients is that they tended to have a fair amount of lethargy. Um, what's your experience with Marinol? So um, you know, clinically, I don't have a great deal of experience with Marinol and where it has been. It's really been for that appetite stimulant um, perspective. Um, haven't really seen it used in, in my setting um, in the way that you had described. Um, but speaking of Marinol from a pharmacological perspective, um, I think when used appropriately, their cannabis is a safer intervention than you know some of these black box medications, which I'm not saying Marinol is. But you think about the antipsychotic 
narcotics, the benzodiazepines, the opioids. And so because cannabis is biphasic in nature, its therapeutic effects or the undesirable effects such as lethargy um, can be modulated by what's in the product. So like what cannabinoid um, is in it, um, the route of administration, as well as the, the timing. Um, not every cannabinoid produces a euphoric effect. And um, I can't say that I'm aware of Marinol necessarily producing that euphoric effect other than the appetite stimulant. Um, so I hope that answered the question. No, it, it did. Thank you very much. And um, thank you for your articles on um, cannabinoids. And also you did some um, regulatory articles for us as well. Yes. Last year, there was a, an article on um, what what clinicians should know, at least, and you know, initially when when broaching the topic, and then you know, this month's article uh, focused on how to discuss and uh, some of the things that we've discussed today about you know differentiating between hemp and cannabis and um, understanding you know what's in the product before pursuing. But uh, you couldn't have said it better. It it truly is um, only scratching the surface. Well, uh, Alex, I really appreciate your sharing your time and expertise with Caring on the Go. And also thanks for your previous article and your presentation at our annual meeting in 2022 in Baltimore. And I hope we'll see you uh, next year in San Antonio. And meanwhile, I also hope that you'll continue to grace us with submissions that our readers and listeners can really benefit from. Uh, this is, uh, again, it's unfamiliar territory for a lot of people, and but it's territory that we are you know, rapidly heading into. So, so thanks so much. Any final words uh, you want to share with our listeners? Um, I would just say that it, it is uncharted territory in a sense, but the way that we get it charted is by talking about it. Um, you had mentioned there's a whole lot of don't ask, don't tell. Um, and for reasons that I can understand, um, however, encourage listeners, um, I'm here as a resource. There's cannabis nurses all over um, the country and that it's, you know, growing um, all the time. Um, every um, opportunity that I've had to engage in events such as this have resulted in um, additional requests for either attaining new knowledge, appraising the literature, you know, how do I navigate the dispensary market, how do I talk to my patients, how do I evaluate what's currently happening. Um, this really has turned into a passion-filled journey that's only going to continue. So um, mm -hmm. if myself or Westminster Canterbury can be a resource to any um, listeners, I'm happy to help. Well, that's fantastic. And uh, congratulations in advance on, on uh, getting your doctoral degree. And I do just want to mention again uh, that the fact that you can get these, uh, you know, get cannabis analyzed and see what's actually in it. Uh, I think for many of us who are, you know, sort of believe in science and whatnot, uh, it, it's nice to know what we're recommending that a patient put in their body, or at least that we're allowing them to, you know, that we're signing off on uh, giving them permission to. So uh, thank you for that. And again, listeners, please uh, read the article. And uh, if you need to get a hold of Alex, uh, we will help you get a hold of her. <sighs> All right. So Beth, our next article is the April cover story entitled The Future of Independent Living, Health and Wellness Take Center Stage. And this is by our senior reporter, Joanne Caldi. I like the term she uses in this article, acuity creep, as it relates to basically all older adult congregate living settings. Uh, you know, for many years, we've said today's nursing homes are like the med surge floors of an acute care hospital of 10 years ago or 15 years ago or whatever it is. 
Uh, and assisted living communities clearly are now like nursing homes used to be as far as the the level of uh, ADL assistance and so on that, that the residents need. Uh, so what insights did you gain from Joanne's article, Beth? Thanks, Carl. So older adults um, are living in independent living settings longer, and they want to continue to age in place. And, you know, so communities have kind of risen to that challenge, and we now have more community-based health resources to refer people to. Um, some of the, the things that um, are becoming more important in independent living settings are a focus on health and wellness, things like fitness, access to fitness centers, access to telehealth, um, technology that may help um, individuals uh, to remember to take their medications. Also, um, some of the contributors to this article talked about um, screening um, individuals went before they move in and offering these kind of health risk assessments just to help older adults plan for future needs. Mm -hmm. um, and some of the communities are having add-on services such as cleaning, food shopping, laundry, uh, even dog walking. Um, I would love that job. Uh, yep. <laughs> that would be a lot of fun. Um, but the communities we have to remember are often not licensed to operate medical care, but they can partner and refer um, the residents of their communities um, to uh, different uh, services. Yeah. So basically, they're saying these independent senior communities are now getting to be sort of like assisted living, just that the assistance is being provided by outside uh, outside uh, contractors or agents or family or whatever it is. Correct. Yeah, well, good. Um, so I think next we'll move on to a somewhat related topic, an interesting article on page nine of this April issue from my friend Ian Cordes, who's been the longtime executive director of our Florida AMDA chapter, or FAMDA, uh, also a long-term editorial advisory board member for Caring for the Ages. And this article is called, Could Senior Home Sharing Be an Alternative to Long-Term Care? We all know how expensive senior housing can be, especially you know this, you know this higher levels of assisted living, and and then obviously a nursing home. You know maybe it's a hundred thousand dollars a year or something. So uh, many people wind up spending up all their savings before they land on Medicaid, and then then they have to live in a nursing home, which is probably a higher level of care than they really need because that's the only thing Medicaid pays for in a lot of states. So what can you tell our listeners about this sort of uh, outside the box solution that Ian discusses in his article. And what do you think about it? Yeah, I, I really liked this article because um, the individuals who are living in independent living communities um, often have the financial resources to be able to pay for all these services, but most Americans don't have that. Um, we know that 60% uh, of households with adults um, over 80 are single adult homes. Uh, and it's estimated that over the course of roughly the next uh, 20 years or so, that number is going to grow to 5 million um, to an estimated 10 million in 2038. Wow. And, and so um, if you think of this, and, and Ian did this analogy, which I loved, it's kind of like an Airbnb for seniors, only it's on a long-term basis. Yeah, and yeah. you know the idea of this um, home sharing has been growing in popularity, uh, generally as a way to decrease loneliness, increase socialization. It's much more cost efficient, 
and you know it creates some um, solutions for for aging in place. There's a lot of different models um, scattered around the United States and in other countries, and they kind of you know all have their own pros and cons. The good thing though is we don't have to wait for any funder to set out any regulations about it. Um, yeah. There are senior home sharing um, match services that may match, um, you know, a widow or a widower um, who has an unoccupied bedroom or section of their home, um, and they may want to have someone come in for uh, companionship. And you can develop a home sharing agreement. Um, it could be a furnished bedroom maybe sharing some common areas. And the the nice thing about this is it provides a home that's economical for the person who moves in, as well as a little rental income for the person who's, um, you know, acting as the, um, um, the host. And um, Ian mentioned, gave a, a shout out to Dr. Carrie Levy, who he said really um, shared a lot about this model that um, has been going on in Colorado. Yeah. Well, I, Probably all of us have seen situations where that type of thing happens, where just, you know, unrelated people um, decide to move in together and, you know, sort of room together. And there are all those benefits from it, you know, not just the loneliness, you know, the sort of companionship thing, but uh, also the, you know, the income issues and uh, the affordability on the other side. So that's great. Um, meanwhile, um, I'm going to be doing some senior home sharing pretty soon. My uh, uh my dad uh, was recently widowed. My stepmom, Bonnie, died in January. And uh, so um, I'm a senior. I'm on Medicare. And my dad uh, I, and I always tell my patients, uh, you know, you're really old when you have you know, when your kids are on Medicare. So my dad's really old now. Uh, he's 89, but he's going to be moving out uh, to San Diego from uh, from Cleveland. And he's going to be living uh, in the, in our house here. So. Um, I'm looking forward to that. Uh, I haven't decided how much rent I'm going to charge him yet. But <laughs> he let me live rent free for quite a few years. So I think you'll return the favor to him. And and <laughs> Carl, I'm sorry about your your stepmom, but I'm glad that your your father will be able to to be with you. Yeah, thank you for that. But anyway, that's a it's a nice idea, and I think uh, you know it may be something that we want to start getting our social services folks. Uh, tuned into when we're doing discharge planning for people where it doesn't seem like they're really going to be able to go home and and maybe they don't want to move into a an actual assisted living or you know they want something that's more affordable so uh great stuff from ian uh so anyway let's uh wrap up the podcast with your caring collaborative column on page six and this april one is a follow-up to your march uh column about pain in patients with dementia. And the Marsh column had to do with diagnosing pain. And this one is about treating pain in that population. So obviously, we may sometimes undertreat pain in patients with dementia, because they're unable to articulate their pain, tell us where it is, or, or you know, describe it in the times or give a, a numerical value. And we don't want to undertreat pain. But we also have to be mindful of adverse effects from our pain interventions, especially the medications. So what are the most important points you want our listeners to appreciate about how to treat pain in this population? Sure. So I'm going to focus a little bit on non-farm treatments. You know, although many of us working in post-acute and long-term care settings, we're really accustomed to using, teaching others about, recommending non-farm interventions when we're treating behavioral and psychological symptoms of dementia. 
I would kind of guess that we're a little less likely to really consciously consider recommending behavioral interventions for treatment of pain in this population. However, some of the same things that we do um, in terms of non-farm interventions to manage BPSD have also shown some effectiveness for pain treatment um, in individuals with dementia. So things like music interventions, singing, um, painting, interactions with a robotic animal, some multi-sensory personalized um, interventions, even some engaging people in physically active games um, and exercise, stretching, all the massage, all those different things can really help, at least in with short-term reduction of pain for um, individuals with dementia. The, the other thing um, that I want to kind of focus on is the medication treatments. It's not like we have a different class of medicines for individuals with dementia. And generally, we find that um, acetaminophen is really the top prescribed drug. Um, one study mentioned 83% of the time that's really what's used with um, opioids surprisingly coming in second. Um I think in practice, what we're often seeing is acetaminophen as a first-line agent, and then maybe some adjunctive treatment with topical medicines, antidepressants. I think many of us, unless pain is severe, is trying to stay away from the opioids um, just because of the negative cognitive effects and the risk of delirium and constipation. Um, and so, falls, right? Yeah. Yeah, and falls. So um, those are kind of the medicines. And then I found this really interesting article when I was doing the review of literature called Shifting Paradigms, Advanced Care Planning for Pain Management in Older Adults with Dementia. And, you know, dementia really is a chronic illness and, and pain in advanced stages of the disease is quite common. And in our orders for life-sustaining treatment, it's focused on cardiopulmonary resuscitation, preferences regarding food, fluids, antibiotics, et cetera. But pain really isn't a part of that. And this article suggests that perhaps it should be. Um, there was some really helpful tables in there. Um, one of them was components to consider in pain management pain management advanced care plans. And then the other one was a sample uh, patient checklist of pain management options, which could be used to help um, patients clarify goals, preferences, and their values for treatment of pain in advanced dementia. Yeah, that's great. And I would encourage our uh, listeners to to read the article and, and hunt up some of those ref, uh, references. I do think uh, different people have very different um you know, desires or treatment preferences when it comes to pain, where some people would rather be really dopey and not feel much pain at all. And others, you know, don't want to be altered in any way. So that's, uh, it's definitely worth checking out ahead of time. Uh, because I'm, I'm sure, you know, any of our listeners that have had that situation where a patient is clearly suffering, you know, they're clearly in pain. And you have a family member who has been designated to make decisions on their behalf saying, you know, no, you cannot give her any morphine. I, you know, I don't want her to have morphine. And in spite of your best efforts to try to educate and, you know, it creates a real, a real cognitive dissonance. And, you know, my job, my obligation is to the patient, not to the family member. And I, it doesn't feel right to let somebody suffer when, uh, when we could, uh, we could help them. So I think the notion of an advanced directive towards uh, pain preferences is a, is a lovely idea. 
Yeah, I thought so as well. Yeah. Um, and hey, maybe cannabis is something that would be considered for, <laughs> for pain. Uh, yeah. Um, well, uh, any anything else on that uh, topic, Beth? I don't think so. This has been a long one, so we probably want to let our listeners uh, get back to some other stuff. All right. So <laughs> Uh, just want to mention there was a ton of other great content in this issue, including a, a transitions of care column that's really interdisciplinary and it covers a case review around discharge planning. Uh, there's an article from our associate editor, Paige Hector, about the importance of communication and collaboration uh, with when there's difficult messages being uh, sort of uh, shared. And there's a nice in memoriam piece about one of our past presidents, Dr. Monty Levinson, who was a big proponent of ethics committees in nursing homes. Uh, so before we close, Beth, any final comments or wisdom to share on these or other articles from the April issue? Sure. I'm going to mention two other articles. One was um, the nursing assistant corner. Um, it talks about a certified nursing assistant conference that's coming up and kind of the importance of networking um, with within that community. It's the National Association of Healthcare Assistants, uh, NACA. It's the CNA Fest 2023. It's going to be in Little Rock, Arkansas, um, July 26th to 27th. And then there was a other um, really lovely article um, from Dr. Fatima Nakfi, um, who talked about um, her gratitude in working with um, one of the nursing supervisors um, who, as she so eloquently put, um, helps to bring calm to chaos in the post-acute and long-term care setting. It really was a nice piece. Calm to chaos. That's something we could all take to work I, with. I know. <laughs> I, I want to meet her colleague. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, sounds like I'll a just, lovely gentleman. Yeah. It's, and as far as the CNAs, as far as, you know, Lori Porter and, and Naka, uh, any of our listeners that can encourage uh, CNAs to go, I, CNAs, I'll say it again, you know, the lifeblood of, of the nursing home, the probably hands down the most important job. Uh, and I'm saying that as a medical director. So, uh, yep, if you can make it to the conference, uh, please do. We we so value uh, the work that CNAs do. So that's going to wrap it up for the April 2023 Carrying on the Go podcast. Sorry, we jabbered on a little bit longer than usual. Under the leadership of Editor-in-Chief, Dr. Elizabeth Gallick, and Managing Editor, Tess Bird, Caring for the Ages continues to report and reflect the outstanding work being done by AMDA, the Society for Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine, and its leaders, members, and communities. Please take a look, please take a look at the April issue, available as always without a paywall at www.caringfortheages.com. And please recommend and share caring with your friends and colleagues. Meanwhile, Dr. Gallick, thank you again for spending your time with Caring on the Go. And now, until next time, I'm Dr. Carl Steinberg for Caring on the Go. If you are a physician and interested in obtaining ABPLM pre-approved certified medical director credits for certification or recertification, visit paltc.org slash podcast. Thank you.